0: Welcome to Watts Radio, KBS News. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Watts Radio. I'm Jeff. And I'm Hanji. And we'll be your hosts for this hour. This week, Watts Radio talks about zero net energy. Zero net energy? Well, we'll find out what that is. Eventually, but in addition to Zero Net Energy, this new trendy thing that all the kids are into, we're going to catch you up to date on the world's current events in energy. Zero Net Energy, it sounds so cool. Sounds so cool, but does it sound as cool as flying cars? Flying cars! Yeah. We're going to talk flying cars, we're going to talk Elon Musk, everyone's favorite superhero, and then we'll talk Zero Net Energy. All that and more. Oh, and grocery bags. And grocery bags. All that and more when we return on Watts Radio. So stick around if you have a chance. Come out from the world and into my arms like
1: wind on the water with moon.
0: You're listening to Watts Radio, KDVS Davis. So Hanj, what's currently happening in the world of energy? Uh,
1: lots, Jeff, lots. And uh, it's exciting this week because I'm just going to let you know, Jeff, big slump in global clean energy investment.
0: Did that just happen this week? What, what are you talking about?
1: Well, actually, it was not just this week, but anyway, Jeff, there's been a big slump in global clean in investment in uh, clean energy globally um you know part pretty much this uh, darling story of the last um i don't know almost a decade now has been the kind of uh, snowballing um rate of investment in clean energy technologies across both. Uh, solar power, um, new innovative types of renewable fuels and electric vehicles. But um, basically, uh, in the third quarter, uh, we're down mm, 40% um, from last year, uh, down to about $40 billion from $74.5 billion the year before. So, um, And a lot of it is due, uh, but some places are doing better. Um, So one of the problems is these are always... uh, not evenly distributed these cuts. So, um, you know, it worries me when we start to see that, like, um, we're not investing in the clean energy future because uh, as soon as we start regressing uh, and spending a lot of money on our, our old our old ways, you know, going back to the bottle,
0: going back to the fossil bottle. I do love fossil bottles. Um, but so so who's doing okay? Like, I always do hear the story that, you know, this year, we've installed more solar panels than any other year, um, and we, we hear a lot about wind. How like we we're just installing more and more wind, especially in Europe, um, where where they are installing more wind, and they've actually seen a huge increase in renewable energy investments for wind in terms of offshore wind. But uh, wh- what's what's going on with the U.S.? Why have we decreased their our investments in clean energy?
1: Well. Uh, for all of you out there in wind land, there's a, there's a wonderful thing um, that we do to subsidize wind energy. It's called a production tax credit. Uh, basically it's um, about $30 a megawatt hour that goes to wind, I believe. Um, and uh, the production tax credit uh, is a really important tax credit because it uh, basically allows um, wind operators to uh, in, to capitalize on building new projects and ensure that they're going to receive a good rate
0: of return. That's that's right, but so I guess what's been happening with the tax credit is that the government, uh, Congress specifically, that can never get their act together. No, surprising, not surprisingly, um, they often decide to renew this tax credit at the very last minute. So there's a lot of uncertainty if it's going to get renewed. So what you end up seeing is these huge, like, sur- like sudden moves to invest at the end of the year before the tax credit goes away, and then people kind of back off on it when they're sure that it's coming back or. Uh, if it's not coming back, they stop investment. And so, what actually happened in the U.S. was more certainty uh, came into existence about the tax credit sticking in place for a longer period of time. So there wasn't this hectic, frantic uh, frenzy to uh, invest aggressively in wind. So that kind of dropped this quarter's um, renewable energy investment compared to what we've seen in the past. Uh, The other major important thing that's happened is that we're actually using less energy now. So demand growth has decreased a little bit, and so utilities aren't as um, uh, they're not as gung-ho about investing in new capital projects, Mm -hmm. because demand growth has been stagnant mm-hmm. yeah that is true
1: jeff and i think that you know the boom bus cycle of the wind energy industry in the u.s um has definitely been something that people have drawn a lot of att- a lot of connection to the ptc this production tax credit um and you know it does seem to be that really every time it's about to expire we see a bunch of permitting go out for new projects and then it goes and then it's about
0: to expire it gets back in but by that point we've already slowed up So anyway, let's let's jump onto the other side of the coin for a second. And let's talk nuclear.
1: Jeff, I think this is actually your favorite power. Um, I think of powers. I think nuclear power. I'm all for those nuclear powers. It is. It's true. Um, So, Jeff, you have some uh, some interesting news here about nuclear power in Japan. It turns out that um, those... Those islands of Japan, they just could not, they could not stay away
0: from the nuclear power. So, uh, for those of our listeners that are old enough or have been paying attention to the world of energy for a long enough to period of time, are familiar with the tsunami that struck Japan in two thousand and eleven, and that caused a major meltdown at the Fukushima nuclear uh, power plant. And so, the power plant basically exploded because the diesel generator that uh it's supposed to kick in in an emergency got washed away, and this caused the reactor to basically create all this hydrogen and then the hydrogen gas ignited, blowing up the uh, facility hydrogen bomb
1: the hydrogen bomb
0: indeed um so <laughs> uh after that aftermath, there was this huge push from Greens and concerned citizens about like the fallout from nuclear power, how it's too dangerous. And then there came into light a bunch of fraud associated with uh, TEPCO that was running the power plant. And so Japan shut down basically all of their nuclear reactors. Um, and Japan's an island state that doesn't have a lot of natural resources uh, of their own. So they don't have coal. They don't have natural gas. And they're not at a good latitude for solar. They're not at a great latitude for that. So without nuclear, they have to import all of these fuels, all of these energy sources, and that gets really expensive. So keeping the nuclear plants shut down was very expensive for Japan. And just recently now, they started uh, starting up a few plants. Um, so around 60 reactors were shut down. They've only begun opening some reactors uh, August 2016. Uh, I'm going to butcher this name, but the Shikoku. Electric Ekakta-3 reactor restarted. Uh, that was really poorly pronounced. but So they started Shikoku. a reactor, <laughs> and uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Agency um, expects another reactor um, that that meets post-Fukushima standards of safety to come online and be renewed in November-December time frame for a 20-year life extension. So that may be, for those of us that are into nuclear and pretty pretty uh, uh, gung-ho about the use of nuclear power as a great, stable, low-carbon source of electricity. Um, this is good news, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, it's also great for the Japanese, so they can import fewer fossil fuels. Well, Jeff, I think nuclear power
1: is you know, obviously going to be an important part of our energy generation portfolio for a long time, maybe unfortunately, but I'll tell you about some one technology that I'm um, excited about, although not excited for the reasons we need it, and that's desalinization. Uh, for those of you out there that um, don't know the word desalinization, I, I don't know if there actually is anybody. I, I'm sorry if you don't. I, I hope I'm not insulting you by saying that, but um, desalinization is removing salt from water, uh, So, so that wasn't that complicated. But the, the thing that's interesting is, Jeff, I was reading about this week, was that they want to do... So the idea here is to do desalinization as an option for energy storage in certain arid climates. Okay, so desalinization is a very energy-intensive process. It takes a lot of energy to take salt out of seawater and make it potable. Just um, about the fact that, you know, there's a lot of water on this planet, uh, most of it's salty and not very good to drink. Now, over the years, desalinization has been getting more and more energy efficient, um, and uh, more and more desalinization ha- capacity has come online in fact um, over on the uh, across the world about 57 percent uh, capacity increase between 2008 and 2013 um, and so now currently about one percent of global uh, the global population or about 750 million people actually get their water uh, from desalinization and uh, the global water intelligence Institute uh, so basically some 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 uh, uh, third-party research groups have basically suggested that almost as much as 15% of water um, uh, so 15% of the world population uh, could be uh, uh, could have be, could have their water needs met by desalinization by 2025 um, so uh, at any rate the the interesting thing here about desalinization is like any type of um, uh, energy production system, Basically, producing water, clean water from salt water, can be an interesting opportunity to store energy, basically.
0: Yeah. You get cool gradients and stuff uh, that, with clever, really capitally expensive technology, gives you some um, interesting opportunities. Uh, But let's let's move away from the talk of the water-energy nexus. If you'd like to hear more, please go check our previous episodes at wattsradio.org. But let's talk for a minute about cars. I love cars. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people. Nice like segue, cars. Jeff. Um, so we're going to talk about the trouble with Tesla's competitors. So for those of you that love Tesla, love made in American, uh, made in America electric vehicles, this is great news. For those that are just like really bullish on more electric vehicle companies, it's better. Maybe not so good. Um, so Tesla's Chinese competitor, Faraday Future, they're they're making a car that looks strangely similar to a Tesla. It's supposed to be modeled and sleek like like Tesla vehicles, and um, they're having some financial troubles.
1: Well, Jeff, it's funny that you say their Chinese competitor because also going to be made in America. They're building their plant basically across the street from Tesla. They're building their other plant basically up the street from Tesla. They have um, co-opted Tesla's vision for making these things. But basically, yeah. So uh, Faraday Future, uh, they have a construction firm working on their um, billion-dollar Nevada factory to make uh, electric cars and batteries. Um, of course, just like their friend Tesla Um, basically though the uh, contractor has filed uh, some some uh, paperwork uh, alleging that the Faraday future has not paid the bills Um, and so uh, it turns out maybe that there might be some financial trouble for Faraday future I don't know they've raised tons of money it seems unlikely that they can't pay their bills but um, we'll see there's going to be a lot of competition in the space because it seems like some of the major automakers are starting to come online and go full force on electric vehicles um we have uh ford audi nvw um all really announcing some big plans to kind of go heavy in electric um they join gm and nissan um leaving pretty much toyota and honda as the only holdouts uh toyota kind of putting their eggs in the hydrogen basket i guess hydrogen
0: hydrogen bomb uh and uh well honda we'll see i guess they're going to be the hybrid company We'll see what ends up happening. Um, But hold on. There's some other things that are going on in in the world of transportation technology. So we're going to have to stop for a second on the EV discussion to talk about stopping at traffic lights.
1: Oh, yes. Now, Jeff, I believe you know something about traffic lights. Didn't you go to some some workshop or conference that was hosted by the, the man who invented the traffic light?
0: Uh, I want to go that far, but I, I've been to many a conferences that talk about super exciting things such as pavement technologies, um, the differences in asphalt and concrete as a roadway surface material, and also how one can learn to love roundabouts, that uh, delightful European invention that we don't really quite understand how to use correctly in the US. Um, but we're not going to talk about that right now. We're instead going to talk about the new technologies being developed for the average everyday car driver that really gets frustrated when they're waiting at stoplights, right? Don't you ever think to yourself, oh, my God, if only I went slightly quicker or slightly slower, I would have caught that green light and would have had to stop.
1: <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I think a lot of times if I could just make it, maybe I would just accelerate a little more or uh, I don't know. Okay. Well, anyway, Ford and Audi both have announced this plan to allow their cars to catch, uh, basically to include technology that will um, in Audi's case actually communicate with the he- with the lights themselves. in Ford's case, I believe it monitors them um, and and basically they allow you to know when the light's going to turn green um, or red. Uh, and so the idea being that you can uh, you know maybe slow down a little bit earlier but also um, you know catch the green.
0: Catch it indeed. Uh, so let's jump on over to talk about like some of the weird bureaucratic issues that go on in the Bizarre place that is US political environments. And this also kind of relates to the ongoing issues with the Dakota Access Pipeline that's taking place to a small degree. We're going to talk a little bit about pipelines. Um, and so the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, is not pleased with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, so FERC. Uh, FERC, they're the government uh, agency that monitors, investigates electricity, natural gas, hydropower, oil and uh, pipeline infrastructure, as well as LNG terminals, electric. They they do a lot of infrastructure. They're the ones that regulate all that infrastructure. And so um, they've been permitting and allowing a lot of pipelines to occur, uh, natural gas pipelines specifically. Um, And pipelines are a great way to transport commodities. Uh, you stick the commodity in at one end and it's indistinguishable across the entire pipeline. People that subscribe to or purchase contracts to use the pipeline can take out the commodity for whatever their, being, their contractual uh, obligation or terms are and it all works out wonderfully. It's a very efficient way to transport quantities large sums of distance. Um, that's why we build them, and so FERC has been readily permitting these things for quite a while now. If you look at the U.S. pipeline network, it's really kind of impressive. Um, it takes up the whole map. It goes practically everywhere. Um, we've and been laying a lot of pipe, eh? We've been laying way, way much pipe. Um, so the EPA, uh, they're saying that you know FERC needs to better consider um, their approach to uh, permitting these pipelines. They're not doing adequate. Uh, environmental impact assessments. They should be considering the life cycle emissions um, associated with the fuels or the construction and the maintenance and the long-term use of these pipelines and that they're not doing that and they're permitting these things to go ahead.
1: Whoa, Ferk, slow your pipeline down, dude.
0: Yeah, so EPA, they're saying, "Hey, you know, we've got to be the environmental cops now for some of our own government organizations that are maybe a little bit too uh, traditionally non-green." And so that's kind of interesting. It's always fun when government organizations go after one another. It's true. I do like a little a
1: little uh, interagency catfighting. Um, yeah, but the EPA is right, man. I mean, like the uh, the National Environmental Protection Act. Provides a great framework uh, for conducting a review of the potential environmental impacts. Um, uh, I know we were talking not about mentioning the uh, Dakota pipeline, but you know this is another case where obviously um, you know the Army Corps had a pathway for this pipeline that was really close to Bismarck, right? Um, it got moved, it got recited further south, closer to this to cross the Missouri, closer to this tribal lands, basically in this area, um, and once again, you know. The the, the the key point, I think, of a lot of the protesters have been centered on the need to do an adequate environmental uh, study and to take a more precautionary pr- principle life cycle perspective to kind of think a little bit more broadly about how much you can really ruin the local environment by putting one of these things down.
0: There's also the Dakota Access Pipeline is likely in weird legal territory where the Army Corps of Engineer also did not adequately consider the provisions that are required of them when dealing with land near tribal areas. Um, And so, yeah, uh, again, this is an instance where government uh, entities are not always following all the governmental regulations and requirements that they should be.
1: Yeah, and actually, I think this is actually a good example of government functioning the way it should, uh, which is to say that you know, FERC is out there trying to do its thing, and EPA is out there doing its thing, and EPA can say to the FERC, "Hey, you need to make sure that you know you observe the law of the land."
0: So that's great. All right, let's let's go to the free market and let's talk Elon Musk, everyone's favorite superhero. Oh yes, my favorite favorite
1: superhero, Jeff Musky Corner.
0: It's the best. Mm, yeah, so Jeff, uh Solar City, uh Solar City. Solar City. What's going on with Solar City? They're building a giga factory in Buffalo, New York. Um, so, that, that's cool. We hear Gigafactory talked about a lot these days. It's kind of like the news, new buzzword in green technology, which is it means you're building huge, huge factories that are scaling up technology. Um, so, Solar City, they're moving to Buffalo. They're hoping to sort of revitalize this community. Um, With that said, uh, maybe there's some issues. Um, Buffalo's been long struggling since the demise of coal or of the steel industry, and so maybe this is gonna improve some things. Uh, SolarCity's doing this to help reduce costs of their solar panels, Um, but that said, one of the like the biggest costs now of solar is not the panels and the modules themselves it's the installation costs or balance of system issues so labor and this other stuff and getting those costs down is it, it's you have to either automate people out of jobs or or do some other interesting things to um to the systems
1: well jeff it's interesting you bring up the fact that the balance of system is so expensive and that is absolutely true. And by balance system, what we're talking about really is a lot of the framing and materials that are required to actually attach solar panels to a roof. So it's usually a steel, um, you know, angle bar frame. Uh, there's uh, electric wiring, obviously. There's sometimes um, improvements that need to be made to the electrical system of the house, uh, and other additional utility connections. At any rate, all these costs add up, and often they can exceed the cost of the panels. Um, often because you know you have to have local labor to do it. So, though, uh, you know our favorite superhero also came out with an announcement
0: about a new and exciting product—a brand-spanking new announcement that you know solar panels—they're ugly right they they go on your rooftop and unless you're really into that green aesthetic you don't really like the look of them so he said no let's let's do away with that and just make a better roof oh yeah this roof looks better than any other roof you've seen before and it also generates electricity so he's producing solar shingles now
1: exactly well it's basically it's like get rid of those old solar panels and get a sexy glass shingle yeah they actually do they look really sleek they're like a sleek
0: glass Shingle, basically. You can get them in various designs. You can get them in Spanish slate and terracotta, and like they look really good. I was actually surprised and startled. Um, With that said, I'm I'm not about to go put down a ton of money to go get myself a new solar roof for a rental property. Right, but
1: it does seem like that uh, these are a really a promising option—one to widen the market for potential rooftop solar because obviously there's a lot of places where it doesn't make sense to put in conventional panels or, blah 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 blah. Also, you could really lower the balance systems costs with these types of approaches where it's a conventional roofing system um, because roof art, roofing already needs to be done. And actually, what's really you know kind of funny about this is that while this was a much Bollyhood announcement by Mr. Muskie actually, uh, one, two of the major solar firms, I think, and w- one of the biggest roofing material companies in the world has about, is about to announce the similar product. So a bunch of these products are about to come out. Um, you're going to see a bunch of really interesting, uh, rooftop material products come out, um, because the costs have kind of come down and it, it kind of makes sense to do it. Um, it, you know, doing the, the kind of uh, hard shingling or terracotta stuff to the roofs is a really nice is a, usually a really good way, um, uh, a good type of roof structure. Um, so anyway, it just seems like this is actually a really uh, uh, a promising thing. it does it remains to
0: be seen, whether Solar city is a big deal. Yeah, but let's go to Elon's other company. Tesla, <laughs> SpaceX. No, not not SpaceX today, unfortunately. Oh, Hyperloop. Tesla. Tesla came out with an, a magical, magical new announcement, saying, "Oh yeah, all Tesla vehicles that you buy from this point forward, uh, if they've come off the manufacturing assembly line as of now, are fully equipped with autonomous vehicle capabilities, as in full autonomous vehicle capabilities, as in self-driving cars are just a few software updates away." Um, if you buy a Tesla. This includes the Model 3, so that's a $30,000 a year car that is supposed to be getting released sometime $30,000 a year. $30,000, full stop, uh, car that's supposed to be getting released here in 2017. Um, Yeah, Jeff, I mean, I think that we've both been
1: saying this for a while, quite frankly, that autonomy is a soft issue and that all the cars are going to have all the equipment you need to do this um, and that really all it's going to be is about a software upgrade
0: uh, that, you know, you can push out
1: to vehicles that suddenly allows them to
0: drive themselves. Yeah, and, I mean, Tesla is right now at the forefront of this. This is way too discounted. That They're the only company right now that is collecting millions of miles of autonomous data every month. Um, so Google, who's been working on self-driving car projects now for years, way ahead of Tesla in terms of the years they've put into this, has much less data than Tesla does. And if you recognize that autonomy in teaching computers to drive is about data, Tesla is definitely at the forefront on this. So it's pretty cool.
1: You know, though, there is some people who are trying to catch up and and doing a good job of it. And uh, one of them is Uber. And not just driving cars around not to mention that because they they obviously have their the autonomous fleet that they have in Pittsburgh now 20 um, a couple dozen cars there they have driving around um, they've had some independent uh, they've had some truck some car monitoring as well they also recently purchased a exciting startup firm called auto that's making an autonomous truck this is a similar this is a class seven eight uh delivery truck so the kind of like a big 18 wheeler that you think driving on the freeway and basically i'm just selling you self-driving trucks are here because uh, i watched a video this week that was self-driving beer Jeff, self-driving beer.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Anheuser-Busch, most, uh, the, the Belgian company most familiar for their uh, Budweiser product, um, <laughs> they, they delivered a semi-tractor full of Bud- Budweiser, uh, it's actually just Budweiser, I guess, um, to Denver. Um, no, no, no. no, no, no. Fort no. Collins, from Fort Collins through Denver to southern Colorado City in the shadow of Pike's Peak.
1: Yeah. It was a hundred, basically, uh, you know, they, this, uh, truck drove about 120 miles, um, with the truck driver not behind the, uh, uh, steering wheel for the majority of the time. In fact, he was actually he was doing yoga is, uh,
0: what he was joking about.
1: Yeah. Doing yoga in the back in the sleeper trailer, because most truck drivers, um, no yoga. <laughs> but, uh, any rate, um, this is beer drones are coming people. I'm telling
0: you, this is happening. Uh, this was an exciting thing. Um, speaking of drones and magical technologies, remember the flying cars that we've been dreaming of since we saw Back to the Future as a kid? I love flying cars! Well, Uber has once again decided to try and make this a reality. Uber has announced the Uber Elevate program, which, uh, Elevate as an elevation for our cars are now in the sky. Um, so Uber says, uh, within the decade, they will have Uber... Flying car service, fully operational. Uh, They expect that in as little as five years time, uh, the service can launch. And basically what this is, is you have small electric vehicles using fully trained pilots that can use the Uber model to like contract out and drive for Uber, pilot for Uber. And they'll pick you up and uh, take you in the air in these small automated aircraft things uh, where they're also piloting. uh, And uh, you'll go at 150 miles an hour. And they have about a hundred mile range so, you know, it can get you across congested traffic in the Bay Area in no time flat. And so Uber thinks it's a pretty compelling model. They, they, they're saying the technology is pretty much there. Some of the control systems need to be better worked out. And then they need to just connect pilots to the vehicles. Um, so they've laid out a plan and they think it's coming within five years.
1: I've heard enough of current events, Jeff. Um, I really want to talk about grocery bags.
0: All right. So, stick around with us and maybe when we come back we'll we'll grace your ears with discussion about grocery bags. We did some collective Googling. So, stick around. listening to Watts Radio with Jeff and Hans on kdvs Davis. Welcome back. You
1: know, if you have missed anything on this program, please stop by
0: our website at wattsradio.org. Speaking of bags, Californians are really into not using plastic bags. Um, So on this uh, upcoming election, you as a Californian, or maybe if you're listening from not California, Californians are getting to vote on whether or not they hate plastic bags or whether or not they really, really hate plastic bags but are kind of confused about things. Um, So there's two propositions up, uh, Proposition 65, Proposition 67, um, and they're kind of weird and conflicting. Proposition 65 was apparently like, Maybe vaguely put on and authored by like the bag industry, so that's weird. Um, Most environmental groups say vote no on Prop sixty five and vote yes on Prop sixty seven. Basically, it's California wants to ban bags, and uh, if you use plastic bags, that is, and if you do end up using a bag, you need to pay ten cents for its utilization.
1: You know, Jeff. I mean, that's interesting stuff. But um, what's really important here, and something that we forgot to mention at the outset of this, is that. Right now, Jeff and I, uh, what we're talking about are um, plastic bags, like the kind you get at the grocery store. And the reason we're talking about that is because once a, once in a while, or every couple weeks, um, we like to spend uh, a little time doing what we call 20 minutes of collective Googling. That's where Jeff and I sit um, and for, uh, you know, 10 minutes each um, or 20 minutes collectively, uh, we Google a subject that we don't necessarily know much about. Um, and then after Googling it for 20 minutes, we try to talk about it like we're experts. Um, and that's fun. That's a lot of fun. Um, so, Jeff, yeah, plastic bags are an interesting um, uh, zeitgeisty subject right now, um, especially when we talk about Banning them, right, and, and 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 or charging for them at the grocery store. Now, uh, uh, the problem with plastic bags, as we perceive them, is not that um, uh, we were paying too much for them or that grocery stores are earning too much money on plastic bags, um, but rather that uh, I think when we use a lot of them freely,
0: um, we degrade the local environment. That's true. Plastic bags are one of the leading contributors to um, environmental pollution across sites. Um, so plastic uh, typically constitutes approximately ten percent of discarded wastes, um, and they represent a way disproportionate share of the debris that is accumulating on the shoreline. That's pretty well established. Uh, Two hundred eighty million tons of plastic is produced every year. Um, that's PVC, polystyrene, polyurethane, all the little symbols on the bottom of your uh, containers. Right, um, and, and that stuff—it's not—it's not necessarily it accumulates; it bio accumulates. Right, and not all of that is plastic
1: bags but plastic bags not to not beyond even their you know um impact on ecosystems and wildlife flora and fauna diversely but they also have an impact on just the local environment In, in the form of litter they're gross they're in drains they screw up sewage and storm drains and things like that too just practical infrastructure there's all kind of reasons why plastic bags are not so great for most cities. Now, so we've wanted to ban them because they have these environmental problems. But we were also aware uh, that, or at least uh, many are aware, that, you know, there's a lot of environmental problems around from a lot of different things. And so, you know, we can put one finger in the dam here and try to plug the crack, um, but then water shoots out another crack in our face. So basically, um, you know, one thing that I was Googling was, what do you do when you want to get rid of the bags? What do you replace them with, I guess? You know, what do you do instead, right? So, um, you know, one thing I guess you do is you have paper bags, right? So you don't have
0: the plastic bags, but you can you can get a 10-cent paper bag. And that's the 10 cents that is either going to fund the stores, because they're more expensive now, or potentially fund an environmental fund that maybe is questionable. Mm,
1: yeah, well... Hopefully, hopefully they go to something good. But um, the problem is that generally, you know, a paper bag can actually produce uh, a fair amount more uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, it can be a lot more intensive from a greenhouse gas perspective, shall we say, than a plastic bag. And it also has some other impacts with respect to water use and other, you know, different types of environmental impacts. You can look up. There's some great life cycle assessments out there. Um, but, but uh, you know, of the few that I, that I thought were pretty decent that looked at these bags, you know, generally i didn't see anything that showed um the paper bags uh having uh, a lower environmental impact per se now that being said um you know you can have maybe reusable bags or other types of biomaterials maybe you could use a bag but then the problem with those is once again if you dispose of them in conventional patterns like you do with most plastic bags where you throw them in the trash
0: and drop it in the trash and forget about it. That's what we do with a lot of things, and sometimes it's okay, and other times maybe it's not.
1: Right, and so if you do that with a lot of these, with a more, heavier-duty, more reusable bag or the bio-based bags, in fact, they're actually, once again, worse for the environment than the original lightweight plastic bag. Or in order to make these systems better, right, to decrease, really, the environmental impacts and make them more sustainable on the long run, we can't just simply put band aids on things like ban plastic bags. We need to create new systems where people have behavior change. They either use reusable bags at the grocery store consistently, or we have um, robust, easy collection of compostable goods and things can be recycled more efficiently.
0: And that's a feature that, you know, a lot of Davisites are really happy to live in. So, I think with that said, we'll play some good listening tunes. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about zero net energy.
2: My name is Ben White. I'm a California licensed architect. I was named the Young Architect of the Year by the San Diego chapter of the American Institute of Architects in 2012. I was a two-time winner of the Better Buildings Case Competition in Washington, D.C., and the manager of the UC Davis Solar Decathlon team in 2015. And I'm currently pursuing a Ph.D. at UC Davis studying zero net energy issues in the built environment. Okay, Ben, we're going to get right into it.
1: We hear a lot about this concept of zero net
2: energy. What the hell is that? Well, that's an excellent question. And zero net energy is on the lips of anybody involved with the built environment these days, from policymakers down to building contractors. And what, in a nutshell, there's a lot of different definitions for zero net energy buildings. But the definition that the State of California has chosen to adopt is a zero net energy building is a building that produces as much energy on site as it consumes on an annual basis. And the California Energy Commission is currently in the process of updating the California building codes, which fall under Title 24 of California statutes, uh, to mandate that all residential, new residential projects be designed to zero net energy status starting in 2020 and all commercial buildings be designed to zero net energy status starting in 2030.
1: Okay, Ben, so that sounds really awesome. I am a big fan. I actually grew up in a house that was off the grid and ran on solar and, uh, you know, So I appreciate the ability to be self-sustaining. But, you know, I also grew up on several acres. So um, what happens when you have really tall buildings? or you want to densify? you want to be in the urban area? It seems like it would be really hard to, like, have enough space to make renewable energy when you also have a lot of people in a small footprint.
2: You're right. And you just said a critical word as well that I left out of the definition of zero net energy, which is renewable energy. So part of that definition of zero net energy is that the energy that's generated on site comes from renewable sources and in most cases now what that means is roof mounted photovoltaics for some of the reasons that you just mentioned, namely site constraints in terms of available area. Uh, rooftops are kind of the, the biggest wide open area on a site on most people's uh, residential lots to be able to put renewable energy sources. The, My understanding of the evolution of the building codes is that high-rise buildings, like you mentioned, high-rise residential buildings will be excluded from the requirement for zero-net energy design. Really, absolutely because of what you said, the energy use of those buildings per square foot of site is so high that there it'd be extremely difficult to uh, make up the energy with uh, renewable sources on on some of the high-rise projects, specifically like, like you see going up right now in big cities like San Francisco and LA and others.
0: So, you keep talking about this on-site thing where the energy has to be located on-site, and so that's not that reasonable for these more dense high-rise buildings. But you haven't mentioned this time-of-use nature. So. Are these buildings all like having energy storage built in so that they actually use the energy they produce or is it more of a net metering
2: kind of concept? It's it's very much a net metering concept so there is energy storage inherent in these projects but that's in the form of the electrical grid. Currently, uh, readily available, affordable energy storage at a residential scale is really not available on the market. There are a few examples of, of uh, products that are, but it really hasn't reached a market penetration to um, make it readily available for most homeowners yet. So really, the concept of zero net energy currently depends on being able to use the electrical grid basically as a battery for energy that's generated during the daytime uh, from, from renewable sources and then used... At different hours.
0: Okay, so if there's this uh, inherent concept that we're not going to be using the exact energy we produce, and we're relying on the grid, why is there the on-site requirement for this energy? It seems like it it would be perfectly reasonable to locate a wind farm or a solar array far away from your home, and then use that energy anyways and count it as your energy if it's all ending up in the grid as a fungible commodity.
2: You're absolutely right, and the. I don't, to me, there's not an easy answer for that question. I I think probably one of the easier answers would be that it makes accounting much easier uh, for zero net energy projects to say that it all has to be uh, consumed, that you're only looking at the energy that's consumed and generated on site. If you begin to uh, look at larger scale renewable sources or uh, say utility scale uh, renewable energy uh, facilities, it starts to get difficult in terms of allocation of how do you allocate the energy that's generated at those facilities to individual homes across the state so from both a energy accounting standpoint as well as a financial standpoint it becomes much easier to uh, limit limit the boundaries of what you're looking at just to an individual building site and whether that's the right thing to do or not remains to be seen actually the there are Uh, many advantages to considering larger scale uh, renewable sources such as wind farms as you mentioned. Uh, And there could be real engineering advantages in terms of being able to look at zero net energy in terms of community scale or regional scale or even statewide scale energy generation as opposed to uh, energy generation on individual sites. There are a number of uh, folks out there who believe that uh, having uh, renewable energy distributed on many rooftops, on many sites, uh, otherwise known as distributed generation, uh, builds in some resiliency to the electrical grid that is beneficial, and that it starts to localize power consumption and generation, which some people also find is a desirable uh, quantity. That, however, really starts to get away from the definition of zero net energy. Those are, those are kind of ancillary issues uh, to ZNE.
1: When we talk about the type of energy used from buildings from the built environment and we talk about zero net energy, we're often talking about, um, you know, kind of conventional building uses like heating and cooling, lighting and appliances, right? Um, But, uh, you know, we are, those are getting more and more efficient and we're putting more and more of our building energy use into plug loads. Which, you know, are becoming a larger and larger share of how we use electricity and use energy, which are a harder and harder piece to predict. Right. And then we like talk about these really dense. We want to urbanize and we want to live in more efficient, you know, urban arrangements that decrease the need to travel because it's very energy intensive, Um, particularly by, you know, single occupancy SUV. So I think that together, the idea of doing that in ZNA starts to like limit its effect, and we should maybe focus more on,
2: like you said, community scale. Well, there's a number of topics to unpack here, and several of which you just mentioned. <clears throat> so you're correct in saying that plug loads are an increasing component of building energy use, and it's projected that miscellaneous electrical loads or plug loads will be the largest and fastest growing component of building energy use moving into the future as we acquire more and more electronic devices and more uh, pieces of equipment that are not permanent pieces of a building. Um, and that area of energy consumption in particular is extremely difficult to regulate um, as it doesn't fall under the jurisdiction of any particular building code. And typically, appliance energy efficiency is not a state-controlled Issue, but rather a federal issue and federal energy efficiency standards for appliances. Uh, I think it could be fair to say that they lag behind uh, what California would be doing in terms of building energy efficiency equivalency. So that's a that's a that's a really big issue to try to regulate. That ties in with the bigger issue, though, of occupant behavior and obtaining zero net energy. You know, uh, at the meter. on on any particular building. One of the critical components in that and in any building really is how are people using the energy? And I think West Village serves as a very good case study for this in that the building was designed and assumptions were made that the users of those buildings would be using them as uh, your, your typical American family uses a house. And as we know, West Village is full of college students, it's a multi-family arrangement, and full of students living in roommate situations that create unique situations for energy consumption, and really the energy use patterns there are much different from your average family of four living in a suburban home. As a result, uh, the energy consumption at those buildings is higher than a typical uh, suburban home housing a family of four or, or, or what have you. So behavior really becomes an important component of this. And we're seeing that that's actually the hard – it's impossible to regulate behavior. So how do you provide a system of incentives and sanctions to encourage the general population to move in the direction of energy-efficient behavior? And I think that that's an area uh, that will continue to be studied for some time as as we we strive to be more and more efficient with our buildings. Um, The densification issue that you discussed is – also, very important. And you know, as uh, there's a direct correlation between densification of building structures and energy efficiency, where more dense structures typically are more energy efficient. So I think that it remains to be seen in California how the push to increase density in urban areas will impact overall energy efficiency because really that push has just really begun via s b three seventy five. And the jury is still out as to whether or not that will be effective. There's got to be
1: ways that we can do this without, you know, adding a bunch of new things to buildings.
2: Can we just design buildings better so they use less energy? We can. And so the to me, the trouble with relying on technology to achieve energy savings is that it, it's dependent upon human behavior and technology can fail or may not. or And it can also be applied in, in inappropriate ways. Really, if we go back to the beginnings of architectural design and think about building orientation, building materials, uh, building design in terms of passive strategies to control building temperature, to control building comfort, I think more emphasis on that would y- potentially yield uh, some big results in terms of total energy savings. An example of a neighborhood here in Davis that was designed using passive strategies that has received a lot of attention over the years um, the neighborhood I happen to live in is Village Homes, and all of the homes in that community uh, were designed using various types of passive strategies. Some were more successful than others, and since they were built in the 70s, many have been renovated in order to make them work better. But the basic tenets of passive design are there, and any architect who goes through a decent architectural training program is familiar with these uh kind of the the strategies of good passive design and I think if we start to see a lot more of that particularly in the single-family residential market then we're going to really start to see uh, energy use come down as well now the reason that we don't see a lot of that currently is construction has been commodified like any other major industry and uh, the folks involved in the construction industry have figured out how to maximize production rates and maximize profit and really passive design, which is unique for each building site, really isn't conducive to mass-produced housing. So it's it really going back to passive design strategies would rec- represent a paradigm shift in terms of how we produce housing in the state. And I think that the building codes could actually be used quite a bit to encourage that. So you're talking
0: about these passive design buildings and hearkening back to an age of bygone architectural design, but when I think of a lot of previous attempts at energy efficient buildings, uh, buildings come to mind that I think generally are regarded as ugly. So like the California Energy Commission building often gets a lot of flack. It was supposed to be one of the best, like most energy efficient buildings at the time. And it's not very eye pleasing. The aesthetics don't seem very good. People seem to not enjoy this. So are passive design buildings things that people don't like when they get? Or is there something more to it?
2: No, and I could... I think the short answer to your question is no. And I won't comment on the aesthetics of the California Energy Commission Commission building. Um, but really just to take passive design as a as a kind of more – to put it in a historical context. Passive design is the way that human beings have been building since we started piling rocks on top of each other to provide shelter. And if you look at some of the ancient structures that have been built, even going so far back as the Anasazi Indians building at Mesa Verde, those buildings are designed according to passive design principles. For fast forwarding into maybe the 1800s, well, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, most buildings were built according to passive design principles, and I don't think anybody would uh, make a statement that there were not beautiful buildings that were created during those periods. When we really started getting away from passive design was with the advent of air conditioning and the ability to regulate the temperature inside of buildings using mechanical means and all of a sudden it didn't matter how you oriented a building, how you treated the windows. That advent of technology which brought us away from passive design allowed all sorts of building shapes and forms and materials to be used and that was great for architectural invention but we also saw a big increase in building energy use as well as other issues like sick building syndrome and some of the other negative things that have happened with building design over the years in terms of occupant health and occupant functionality. I think getting back to passive design, what that means for for a lot of us in the design professions are that you really start to have to pay more attention to the particular site, to the region, to the microclimate, to to the factors that surround your building that make your site unique. And what it offers the opportunity to do is create buildings that are more unique and well-situated for their site, which to me is a, is a wonderful thing. The, the concept of being able to travel from town to town or city to city and see variation in buildings, because they're designed for their site. Whereas today, if you're in Davis, you can drive to Sacramento, and the buildings in Sacramento look just like the buildings in San Diego, that look just like the buildings in Las Vegas, that look just like the buildings in Connecticut. So there's really no consideration anymore for climate, site, locality going back to passive design, I think, would, would start to reinforce that. I'm not saying that we need to go back to the past. I embrace technology and all its advances, and I think that there's a place for for good modern building techniques, good modern building materials, just with an acknowledgment that basic passive design strategies uh, could represent a, a significant energy savings if implemented properly.
0: So, uh, I guess, um, is the c concept really a thing that will only be realized in the future? Are there examples of zero net energy buildings today that are truly zero net energy?
2: You know, that's a really good question. There's, here at UC Davis, we're home to the largest planned zero net energy community in North America uh, with West Village. And that building was built according to the 2007 California Building Code energy standards and has yet to actually obtain zero net energy on paper. Or in in reality, uh, the last values that I saw for that project were that it was about 87% uh, ZNE, so generating about 87% of the energy that it consumes. There's other projects around the state that have aimed for zero net energy, and it's my understanding that several of them have have, have obtained it, uh, but certainly not every project that's been designed to ZNE standards to date has been able to actually achieve that type of building performance.
1: One of the premises of this, though, is that it relies on kind of this robust net metering policy stuff. And we've discussed in the program both the political sort of implications of of these kind of, uh, well, anyway, when when net metering becomes a little less savory, uh, as it did in Nevada a few months ago. So what happens when the economics of net metering or something like that change? Does that change the zero net energy game?
2: From my perspective, and maybe we'll get some folks calling in about this, but from my perspective, it's not so much an economic question as, as it is a political question. And I think what we saw in Nevada and in Arizona is that the the politics of the energy companies um, kind of ruled the day and changed the net metering laws in their favor, which uh, they I, they feel perfectly justified in doing from a business standpoint. In California, the net metering laws are currently tipped a little bit more towards the producer's favor, meaning the, the person who has solar panels on their roof, in terms of California folks are reimbursed for the electricity that they produce. So I know that's a topic of a lot of sensitivity for the utility companies. So in California, the entity that's responsible for mitigating or for negotiating that that topic is the California Public Utilities Commission. And they've been struggling with it. There's been talk over the years about going back to uh, wholesale rates or even lower uh, for for folks that are in a net metering net metering agreement. And there's been you know advocates pushing for higher reimbursement rates based on time of use. So I don't think it's a settled question yet. I think it goes both ways, and and it's very much a to me it seems like it's very much more of a politically driven issue than an economically driven issue. So is your home zero net energy? Hmm. You know, I do live in, West, or in, in uh, village homes that I mentioned earlier, and it was designed in the 70s as a highly energy-efficient home uh, using passive techniques. And I can say as a fact that I've never had higher utility bills uh, than I have living in this home. And I think that says a lot about the way the buildings were designed and built in the 70s. We've learned a lot since then.
1: Okay, most memorable visit to a building.
2: At present, I would have to say the Sagrada Familia uh, Cathedral in Barcelona, Spain.
1: Considering the total inability of governments to address climate change and the uh, you know uh, looming march of, of sea level rise, um, how do you feel about houseboats?
2: You know, from a policy perspective, I don't think that enough attention has been paid. You know, houseboats are one solution, but I don't think enough attention has been paid to the car, to cars that can float. And, you know, we see a lot of these examples of this in San Diego. There's a big boat that drives on city streets that hauls SeaWorld tour- tourists around. And, you know, that's the size of a single family home. And why not have those that can bob around out in the bay in the evening and then drive drive to work in the morning? you know combine that with electric vehicles and autonomous technology and you really could have something powerful on your hands there that you know you're not paying rent for land you, everything's self-contained and you know it could potentially be zero net energy as well so i i think that there's a lot of opportunity that we haven't tapped into in the state yet
0: excellent amphibious zero net <laughs> energy vehicles <laughs> <laughs> coming to a red side near you <laughs> All right, well, I think that wraps it up. So thank you very much, Ben. It was great having you on the show. Thank you.